Uh, but we are on lesson number 94. And it is called The Light Gives Sight, Part 2. And this is Part A of Part 2. <laughs> we will be looking at John chapter 9, verses 8 to 26 this morning. We have a four-part outline. Last week, you listened to verses 1 to 7 being taught, an illustration. Today, we're going to be looking at an interrogation. We won't finish that interrogation, but we'll get as far as uh, the beginning of the second interrogation of the beggar. We're going to be looking at a long interrogation of the blind man, the man born blind, the blind beggar. And then we're going to see his parents get interrogated, and then we'll begin the reinterrogation of the beggar. We won't get to an identification or an impartation. We'll have that, Lord willing, next week. I hope you will come back because of the best part of the story of the healing of the man born blind is the end of the story. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. So please come back next week because um, that, be, that will be the real blessing when we see him get fully his spiritual sight. We've already seen him get his physical sight. Next week we'll see him get his spiritual sight. But today we're going to see the process of his enlightenment. So let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into our lesson, all right? If you'd bow with me, Father, thank you for the beauty of your creation. Thank you for this season when it is cooling off and we can see your magnificent creative powers in the beauty of the leaves as they change. We just... Thank you, Lord, that you have magnified yourself in your creation. We thank you, Lord, for things we might take for granted, like our eyesight. Thank you that we can see the beauty of this world you have created for man. We thank you, Lord, for our health to be able to even get out of bed in the morning and to come here. We thank you, Lord, that you are our light and our salvation. So whom shall we fear? No one. We need fear no one. You are our strength. You are our everything. So we don't need to be afraid, even though this world is getting to be a scary place to be in. But uh, we thank you, Lord, that we, can, that we can bank on the truths of your word. And now I just pray, Lord, that you would feed your people through a study of your word. And may Jesus Christ alone be lifted up. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, in thinking about this week as I was studying the um, healing of the blind man and thinking about his silent subjection to the Lord's actions of putting a mixture of, of spit and clay on his eyes. I mean, that's kind of a yucky thing to think about. Here he's sitting outside the temple and this guy comes along who he doesn't know who he is yet and he spits on the ground and makes a mixture of... Um, this clay and spit puts it on his eyes and then thinking too about not only the man's silent subjection he didn't he didn't say a word you know why are you doing this or who are you or anything and then he immediately obeyed the lord's command to go to the pool of siloam and wash i kind of wondered why he so readily complied without any as i said any objections any questions any resistance whatsoever after all, as we'll see in our lesson today, he did not know, at this point in time, he did not know who Jesus was. Yet, it was the Sabbath. Remember, we're told that in verse 14 of this chapter. It was the Sabbath, and what he was being told to do by this man, who he didn't really know, was in direct dis disobedience of the Sabbath rules of the Pharisees. So why did he so readily obey? Well, number one... He was a true sheep. 
he was a true sheep. From his later conversation in this chapter, which we'll begin to look at this morning, we're going to learn that he was a true believer in God. He did believe in God. He didn't know that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, but he did believe in God, and he knew the Scripture, and actually, we're going to see that he had more spiritual discernment than Israel's religious rulers, which really wasn't saying a whole lot but he was a true sheep and as we're going to see in the very next chapter john chapter 10 the true sheep know the shepherd's voice don't they the good thing was the man couldn't see but he could hear and he could hear the voice of his shepherd and let's not forget too that very likely the man heard the conversation between the lord's disciples and himself that went on in verses 2 2 to 5 of this chapter. He was sitting right there outside the temple somewhere when the Lord's disciples asked the Lord who had sinned. You know, the Lord is leaving the um, court of the women where the Feast of Tabernacles had, had been going on and where he had declared himself to be the light of the world and all that went on. And when he finished saying, before Abraham was, I am, the Jews took up heavy stones to stone him to death. And he passed through their midst. And he's on his way out when he sees this blind man. man. And the disciples looked at him, and you know, the blind man, and said, Lord, or Master, I guess they said in that verse, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents? Now, the blind man is sitting there, and I really think he heard this conversation because, you know, when a person um, is, is absent in one of their senses, like this guy couldn't see, what usually happens? Their other senses take up the slack, and their other senses are usually very keen. So I am sure this man's hearing was very astute, and he most likely heard the disciples ask this question of this one they called master. So he might wonder why in the world uh, would these disciples ask this man such an insightful question if they did not think very, very highly of him. Who did they think he was? Did they think he was God to ask such a question? You know, master, who did sin? This man or his parents? That's a very insightful question. Who would you ask that of? I mean, you almost, you have to be God to know the answer to that. So, and by the way, this is just an added point. Isn't it sad that the disciples, when they saw the man sitting there blind, blind beggar, that they didn't say, I mean, they knew the Lord had healed other blind men. He's already healed some blind men. Why didn't they say, Lord, have mercy on this man. Why don't you heal him? Give him his sight. But they didn't see the man at all in that way, did they? They still haven't learned a lot about compassion. All they do is see the man, they look upon him, and they see him as an object of curiosity, and they see him as uh, someone they can have a theological discussion about with the Lord. So if the man um, heard the question, then he also heard the answer, didn't he? He heard the Lord's answer, and the Lord's answer was magnificent to such a one. Here's what he, the Lord answered. Look with me at verse 3. This is just a review so far, but the Lord answered and said, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, can you imagine, just put yourself in this man's position, the blind man's position for a minute. Can you imagine hearing those words? After your whole life long, 
and we figure this man is at least 30 years of age because his parents say he is of age and he's testifying in the court of the Sanhedrin and to be, um, be able to testify in a court you had to be at least 30 years of age. This is not a child. This is a man at least 30 years of, old, of age. And so his whole life long he has heard that he either sinned in his mother's womb about which, you know, something he did in his mother's womb that he, he can't remember a thing about. What could he have possibly done that was so awful in his mother's womb? Or that he was going to commit some horrible sin in his, in his life, you know, some, some future sin. And this was his just punishment for that future sin ahead of time. Because this is the common thinking back in that day, remember? We discussed that last week. Or that he was reaping the consequences of what he had sown in some previous sinful life, you know, some, some very sinful activity he had committed in some previous life, because a lot of them believed in reincarnation. We talked about that. And yet he didn't remember anything about that former life. And so this is all he's, or, and there was one other option. The other thing he might have heard his, all his life was that his parents had committed some awful sin like uh, fornication, some preconceptual sin that caused him to suffer all of his life. Now, that's, those are the things he's heard. Everybody's looked at him and judged him about things that he doesn't, doesn't even know or remember or wasn't even responsible for. And now, all of a sudden, instead of hearing all those things, he hears that he was born blind so that God might be glorified in him. That's a big difference, isn't it? And so that would excite the man. And then to continue to hear this same one, this same compassionate, authoritative, gentle-sounding voice say that he must work the works of God who sent him, God who sent him. I mean, remember, the man, the blind man, was not in the temple hearing what the Lord had said in John chapter 8, the light of the world sermon. So he's hearing, this guy says he must work the works of God who sent him while it was yet day, and then to hear that same voice go on to say something even more incredible. What did he say in verse 5? As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What did this blind man want more than anything? To see, to be able to see the light. And so these statements of the Lord Jesus that I believe the man heard, plus the fact that of, you know, his own great desire to see. If there was anything this man would have wanted in his life, it would be to see. I believe that uh, these are the reasons why this man so instantly and fully obeyed Jesus Christ who he didn't know yet was Jesus, you know, Christ, the Christ, at the expense of disobeying the Sabbath laws of the rabbis. Now, I have come in my studies over the years, I've studied this man several times, but I have come to really appreciate this man and really respect him. He is at the top of my list of favorite Bible characters, along with, you know, some of the other ones that I say are my favorite. I have a lot of favorites, but he is one of my favorite. He is really... The only one in this whole episode except the Lord Jesus, and I include in that the disciples, because as I just said, they don't show too much compassion in this episode. That's the one and only time we hear about them. But he, he really stands out as the only one besides the Lord who shows integrity. 
he shows real character, courage, uh, discernment, steadfastness, and I even like that he shows um, a, a bit of a sense of humor. We may not get that far this morning, but this guy's, I really like him. In fact, the more backbone we find he displays, in other words, the more he stands up for truth, the more light he receives. So he really is a perfect example to us of what we've been talking about for weeks, that the more we live up to the light of truth that is given to us, what? The more light we receive. And that's exactly what happens in his situation. Now, let's not forget that this event, as I just sort of said in our introduction, took place on the immediate heels of the Jews having picked up heavy stones to kill Jesus. That was in 859. They hated Jesus. They hated him, they hated him, they hated him to the point of wanting to murder him because of all the things he had said, number one, about them, that they, he had said that they were of their father who? The devil. He had told them that they didn't even know God. He had told them that he was the light of the world and that they would die in their sins if they did not believe him. And he even had the audacity to tell them that before Abraham was, I am, was even claiming to be the great I am. Jehovah God. And then, not only had he miraculously slipped out of their presence untouched, which was really a miracle, but the next thing they hear, these Pharisees, the next thing they hear, they probably were going like, well, at least we got rid of him. You know, he's gone. And he didn't perform any miracles this time that we have to contend with. You remember the last time he had been in Jerusalem, he had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And that man had been impotent for how many years? 38 long years he had sat at that pool waiting to be healed. And that was a hopeless, helpless case, just like this blind man. So maybe they're saying, well, he said all these things and we hate him and we want to do away with him, but at least we don't have to contend with any miracles because in our whole study of the Lord's attendance at the Feast of Tabernacles, did we read of him performing any miracles? I mean, you know, specific miracles for people? No, we didn't. So they probably thought, well, at least he didn't do that. And then <laughs> the next thing they hear about is this big ruckus about some beggar who had been born blind receiving his sight from this very Jesus who they so murderously hated. And they're going, oh, no. If this miracle was true, you see, they really had a problem because Old Testament scripture clearly indicated that one of the proof credentials of the coming Messiah, of the true Messiah, would be that he would be able to give sight to the blind. Now, no one had ever done that. No one in the Old Testament scriptures, you can go through None of the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, none of the prophets had ever given sight to the blind. Now, there were a lot of people who had sight who were blind did, but no one who was blind who received sight. It was a proof credential of the coming Messiah. It says, for example, in Isaiah 29:18, and in that day, speaking of the day of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Now, Jesus at this point in time has already healed some blind men. 
Do you remember he healed um, he healed the the man in Bethsaida who received his sight in stages? Remember that? But when the man first could sort of see a little bit, it was the only miracle in stages. He said that he saw men walking around like trees. You know what that told us? Told us that that man had not been born blind. That was a restorative sight miracle. He had seen before because he knew what men look like and he knew what trees look like. And also he had healed at this point in time to two other men. I believe it was in um, Matthew 9. But nothing was said about the fact that they had been born blind. And then there was another man he healed who it said um, was blind, deaf, and mute. But it was because of demon possession. This is the first time the scripture tells us that he healed a man who had been born blind. So it's even a bigger deal because it isn't just a restoration of sight. It's like a, it's like a, what? It's like a creation miracle. You know how he gave the maimed new limbs? This is kind of like, I guess, he had to give the guy new eyeballs so that he could see. So the Jews had a, a problem here. The Jews who wanted to rid themselves forever of Jesus had to do something. They had to deny, either deny the miracle or discredit the one who claimed to have been healed so as to discredit the one who did the healing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or they had one other option, and they had done this before. They could declare that this miracle was satanic in origin. But the problem, and they don't really go in that direction, we'll see. Because the problem with saying that this man received his sight and it was satanic in origin is that Satan never opened anyone's eyes because his specialty is in keeping eyes closed. His specialty is in keeping people in darkness. So if they, if they conceded to this former blind man's testimony, and as we'll see, he progresses from saying that Jesus was a man to saying that Jesus is a prophet, to saying that Jesus is of God, and then next week we'll have to come back and see that he actually falls before the Lord and worships, worships him as Lord. He, he knows that he is the son of God. But um, in, in the courtroom of the Sanhedrin, they hear him say that Jesus is a prophet and that he is of God. And if they concede to that in any way whatsoever, then the people, the common people, would realize, you know, oh, if Jesus is a prophet, or if he is even of God, then everything that he has said about their religious rulers is true. And what did he say about their religious rulers? They were hypocrites, they were liars, they were murderers because they wanted to murder him, they were of their father the devil, you see, so the, the religious rulers really have a problem here. They have to destroy this man's testimony. So first, they're going to try to discredit his, his testimony, and they do so by a long, harassing interrogation of him and his parents. And when that fails, then they resort to trying to discredit him personally. They, they go back to their old trick of name-calling. And when that fails, because this man really 
He's really got integrity. When that fails, they have only one option to shut him up. They excommunicate him. They desynagogue him. They, they, try, they put him out of the temple in order to close his mouth because people wouldn't talk to someone who had been excommunicated from the religious life of Israel. So let's begin our lesson this morning by looking at verses 8 to 12. And we're going to look at um, the man's interrogation, which begins very innocently enough with just his neighbors and others who had known the man when he was blind. So let's look, uh, starting at verse 8, after he had went his way to the pool of Siloam, like the Lord Jesus had commanded him and had washed and come seeing, it tells us that, in verse 8, the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him. So that's neighbors and other people who had known the man before when he was blind, others that saw him when he was blind, said, is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him. And the word said in the Greek is given to us in the imperfect tense there in verse 10, which means they said over and over and over again, continuously said. Different groups of neighbors kept asking him, how were thine eyes open? Now we're going to notice that that question is asked four times, or it's recorded that it was asked four times in this interrogation of the man, sometimes by the Pharisees, sometimes here like by the neighbors. But in reality, because there are so many verbs given in this account that are shown in the imperfect tense or are given in the imperfect tense, he was actually asked that question probably at least 25, 50 times means they kept asking him how were your eyes open how were your eyes open over and over again he has to ask that answer that question and here's what he said he answered and said a man that is called Jesus this is the first time he answers a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me go to the pool of Siloam and wash and I went and washed and I received sight Then said they, the neighbors and friends, unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Okay, let's stop right there. I want you to just try to imagine. Probably hard because I don't think any of us have ever been blind, other than maybe a day or so of our lives. If I'm wrong, raise your hand. Okay. But just try to imagine the excitement of this man when he received his sight there at the pool of Siloam. I just can't imagine how excited he would have been. And he didn't get his sight in stages. He just had sudden, you know, if somebody has an eye operation, it takes, they have to wear glasses, sunglasses for a day or two. You know, it's sort of a, 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 prog- a process of getting their full sight back. But here, just suddenly, he's washing that yucky mixture of, of spit and clay off of his eyes, and he's looking down in the pool, and, and he sees his own, I would imagine, the first thing he saw is his own face. He didn't even know what he looked like. He sees his own face reflected in that smooth water of that pool. It is smooth water. I have been to the pool of Siloam and seen it. And you know what? He had never seen water before. This is the first time he's looking at water. He had never, he had never seen anything before. I can just picture him looking at the water, you know, looking at it in his hands, uh, looking around. There's a wall around that pool of Siloam. 
Um, and there are narrow, narrow, steep steps that go down to it and up out of it. And I'm sure he's looking at those steps. I'll never forget the Pool of Siloam, ladies. I, I can see it right now in my, in my mind. And the reason I'll never forget it is because my precious mother-in-law, I was there with Pastor Bob, Jeanette, and we took my son, was seven years old, and we took my mother-in-law, and she fell down those steps. <laughs> boom, 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 down the pool of, you know, the steps. They don't go right to the pool, so fortunately she didn't fall in the water. But I, I'll never forget the pool of Siloam. Anyway, so uh, he had never before seen the sky. So I imagine he looks up and he's looking at the marvelous blue of the sky. There, I don't remember any trees being there. But I, he had never seen where he was going before. But now he could see those steps, those narrow, steep steps leading up out of the pool. And perhaps instead of groping his way back up those steps, as he would have carefully groped his way down those steps, and think about that. He really obeyed the Lord. That was dangerous for a blind man to go down those steps. Now, instead of groping his way back up them, I could picture the guy leaping up them two stairs at a time. Being blind, he probably had never run in his life. Probably never run in his life. It would have been too dangerous. I don't think they had any seeing eye dogs back then. I don't even know if they used canes. Maybe they used some kind of a stick. But he would have had to have gone very carefully, feeling along for walls and, and making, you know, very slowly making his way so that he wouldn't trip on anything or bump into anybody or whatever. But now I would imagine that the first thing he wanted to do was run back to his neighborhood where he lived. Um, I would assume that he had never been married and that he lived with his parents. And he must have just absolutely been bursting wide open with joy, unspeakable, to go home and tell who what had happened. His parents, I believe that this man would just so much want to tell his parents, who had also suffered very much from the burden of having given birth to a blind man, because people would look at them and think, hmm, what did you guys do before he was born? And plus, he couldn't add to the income of the family except by begging. And they might have been, you know, just embarrassed about him all of their lives. But don't you know, he wanted to just burst into the home of his parents and see his mother's face for the first time. He'd never seen his mother. He'd never seen his father. And then to put faces to all those voices of his neighbors and acquaintances that he, he knew by their voices who they were, but he had never seen their faces. So after bursting upon his neighborhood to share his good news, probably having gone to his own parents' home first, words spread like wildfire about what had happened. And everyone was outside their homes in the streets talking about it. And I got to thinking they were probably already outside of their homes on the street because remember what day is this still this is the sabbath this is the eighth day really of the feast of tabernacles the feast itself was over but because it was the sabbath everybody couldn't take down their booths yet so their booths are still standing and probably everybody is out in their booths and it's the last time they get to talk to other people and you know celebrate sort of the end of the feast. So probably everybody was outside anyway. And seeing this man uh, having his sight now, a discussion 
took place among them as they stared at him in amazement and asked one another, isn't that he who sat and begged? Isn't that him? And we find a division because we find that some of the neighbors say, yes, it's him. That's him. It's got to be him. Same clothes we've seen, you know, same guy, same hair color. It's got to be him. It's him. But others said, hmm, we're not quite so sure. It, it's like him, or, but we're, we're not quite so sure. Why do you think, as Terry just said, why do you think some of his neighbors and people who had probably known him all his life, why do you think they might question whether it really was him? Well, you know, for one thing, his opened eyes would have greatly transformed his, his face. You know, someone who had been born blind never learned how to focus his eyes before like you know you have a brand new little baby and a lot of times they look at you and they're cross they're cross-eyed and but they eventually learn how to use the muscles of their eyes and move their eyes at the same time well maybe this man was cross-eyed a lot of the times maybe his eyes I, i've seen blind people where really all you see is the whites of their eyes he wouldn't have had any um maybe he didn't have any pupil in his eye because he was blind i don't know i don't know all the medical things about blindness but I know that he couldn't focus on faces before and you know your eyes are very expressive aren't they they can change they can change your whole countenance just by your eyes like if I look at you like this I look a whole lot different than if I ah, like that right <laughs> plus before the man might have had you know he'd be he'd be feeling his way along he'd be moving very slowly maybe he had a long sad countenance on you know his face and now all of a sudden he's very expressive he's probably running around leaping with joy and he's smiling and and he just looks different um, and so that's why some people weren't quite so sure if it was him so he was running around from group to group and he was settling their their division here and they were, he was saying yes it is it's me I'm the blind beggar it's me, I've received my sight. And of course, the natural question arose over and over again, which is what we see by the imperfect tense. Uh, how were your eyes open? How did you receive your sight? And he gave a very straightforward account of what had happened to him with an interesting addition. Now we find out that somewhere along the line, the beggar, the blind beggar, had learned of the name of his benefactor. Now he knows that the one who healed him was a man called Jesus. Now, I can't imagine that he sat at the temple gate or wherever he sat to beg and had never heard of Jesus before because he was the talk of the town, remember, before the feast uh, began. But it's interesting that he said a man called Jesus. There were a lot of people called Jesus back in that day. That was, a very, that was like John. That was a very common name. So he says a man. He doesn't say the man. Jesus so maybe he you know still he still really didn't know the identity of his benefactor but he maybe one of the disciples used the Lord's name and called him Jesus he's learned his name is Jesus so there's one interesting addition and there's one interesting omission in his testimony notice that he does not mention the fact that Jesus spit upon the ground in order to make clay with his fingers what does he say in verse 11? A man that is called Jesus made clay. He says nothing about when the Lord went. <laughs> and he would have heard that. I mean, wouldn't he? It, it takes a little noise to, to make spit. 
but he doesn't say a thing about the Lord spitting. Perhaps the man purposely did not mention the spit in order to downplay the Lord's breach of one of the rabbinic rules about the Sabbath. By the way, so you could write this in your little book of trivia, this is the Lord's third spitting miracle. You all wanted to know that, didn't you? <laughs> Remember, he had spit before, to, uh, and he anointed another blind man's eyelids with his spit. He didn't even mix it with sand and make clay, but he had spit and put his saliva on a blind man, and another time he had spit and put the spit into a deaf man's ears. So this is the Lord's third spitting miracle, and I believe it's his final one. No more spitting. We won't see any more spitting. So that's the last time I get to go. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? <laughs> but anyway, he didn't mention this because it was a breach of the Sabbath law to make clay with spit and, and sand or spit and dust. I just get so amused thinking about some old rabbi laying in his bed wide awake at night, you know, his long beard there, and, and, he's, and he's thinking, hmm, what other Sabbath rules can we make up? Let's see. Ah, I got one. Let's make it against the law to make clay with spit and sand. Isn't it ridiculous how they came up with these things? And it was positively forbidden to apply saliva to the eyelids. So, it's, uh, I mean, you can't, you can't wet your fingers and apply saliva. What is the sin in that? Do you see a big sin in doing that? Absolutely not. So I guess on the Sabbath, I got to think it was also against the Sabbath rule to wash your eyes on the Sabbath, as we'll see in a minute. Um, so I guess on the Sabbath, everybody went around with all the gook in their eyes and the sand... <laughs> caught in their eyelashes, sleepy eyes, because they couldn't put saliva on them and they couldn't wash them. Anyway, so it appears that uh, there was a discerning element already at work in this former blind man in trying to protect his benefactor in that he doesn't say he spit and made the clay. But notice it was the work of Jesus that this blind man, former blind man, is focused on. He's focused on the Lord's work, not on the person of Jesus. He said, he made clay. He anointed my eyes. He said to me, you go and wash. And also, so his focus is on the work of, of Jesus instead of the person of Jesus. And also his focus is on the humanity of Jesus instead of the lordship of Jesus, because he says a man called Jesus. He was yet ignorant as to the Lord's true identity, as we find out he was also ignorant as to the Lord's whereabouts, because as soon as the former blind man had given his witness, the people asked him where Jesus is. That's in verse 12. Where is he? To which he honestly answered what? I don't know. I know not. The two were separated. Jesus and his men did not go with the man to the pool of Siloam. So remember this. We won't get to this. The, the, re the reason I want to mention this until next week. But do remember that the Lord's disciples never saw this man receive his sight. Okay? The Lord just put the clay mixture on the man's eyes and sent him away. 
he didn't accompany him there. And that it's interesting when I look back at the miracle, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem and he healed the man who sat at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And he said, you know, arise, pick up your bed pallet and walk. Uh, and then the man was asked by the Pharisees who healed you. And he, he, um, he said it was Jesus, but... Um, but he, he, they asked him where Jesus was or something like that, and he didn't know. It says he wist not. He didn't know where Jesus was because, again, Jesus had conveyed himself away. He left, left the, uh, the uh, man right after he healed him. Same situation. But also a difference between that and this miracle is that Jesus, when he did meet the man who had been healed at Bethesda, said to him, Go and sin mo- no more, lest a worse Thing come upon you. So you know what was the reason for that man's infirmity? His own sin. He said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing. That was saying, the reason for your 38 years of impotence is your own, the consequence of your own sin. So we can never really judge why a person might have an infirmity of some kind or a handicap. It's a totally different situation here with the blind man. Because he was born blind so that the works of God might be made manifest in him. So anyway, there was a difference. But the former blind man here, just like the, the uh, man at the pool of Bethesda, did not know where Jesus was. In fact, you have to think about this. He had never seen the face of Jesus. He'd only heard his voice. He as yet has never seen Jesus' face. So for all he knew, Jesus, I don't think he was, but Jesus could have been standing in a corner of his neighborhood somewhere and the man would not have known that that was his benefactor because he didn't know what he looked like. He would only know him by hearing his voice. And you see how this is leading into the next sermon we're going to be looking at, which is the Good Shepherd sermon. And the true sheep know the voice of the true shepherd. Now, we don't know why the people wanted to know where Jesus was. We don't know if it was because they wanted to find Jesus so that they themselves could be cured of some infirmity or maybe take some of their loved ones to see Jesus and be cured, or if it was because they had heard that the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews had made it very well known to the people in Jerusalem that they wanted to kill Jesus. And if you don't believe me, look at John 7, 25. And maybe, I hope this isn't their reason, but maybe they wanted to find out where Jesus was so that they could report his whereabouts to the authorities and perhaps gain a reward for doing so. But either way, these neighbors and friends of the blind man determined that such a spectacular miracle as the healing of a man who had been born blind. Such a miracle needed to be reported to the custodians of their religion so that they could assess the situation. So what do they do? They bring him to the Pharisees. And we look next then at the reaction of the Pharisees to the blind man's testimony and their subsequent very harsh interrogation of him which although they meant this interrogation for evil, this this process of theirs, this harsh treatment of the man, was used of the Lord to work for the man's own good. Isn't God the expert at taking what men mean for evil and turning it to good? We find that in this interrogation, 
the man begins to grow in his own spiritual enlightenment as to the person of his benefactor. He goes from knowing that he was a man called Jesus to calling him a prophet. So let's look at verses 13 to 17. It says they, that's speaking of the neighbors and friends, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day. That's how we know this whole thing took place on the Sabbath, when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, and notice how many times it'll say again in this account, again the Pharisees also asked That's given in the imperfect tense, which means they ask him over and over again how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man, speaking of Jesus, This man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others of the Pharisees said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Then say, they say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He, the blind man, said, He is a prophet. All right, go back to verse 15. When the blind man is brought before the Pharisees, they again, also just as the neighbors had done, ask him, how were your eyes opened? Notice they don't ask who opened your eyes because we can be sure they know they knew who did it, right? Sure they knew who did it. They ask how because they want to catch the who. Notice that John warns us ahead of time in verse 14 about how this interrogation is going to go. It's not going to be very objective. It's not going to be very fair. They really don't want to know the truth. John hints to us ahead of time of this because he tells us that it was what day? It was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened the man's eyes. You see, No healing was permitted on the Sabbath. You could do what you could to make a sick person comfortable on the Sabbath, but you could in no wise do anything that that would help to make him better. Now, do we have a God that's cruel like that? That is so absolutely ridiculous. You couldn't give a sick person any kind of medicine. You couldn't put saliva on him because saliva was considered to have medicinal purposes as part of their reasoning for all of that. So no healing. Remember when the man at the pool of Bethesda got up and walked after 38 years and they weren't happy about it? The Pharisees, all they were was mad because he was carrying his bed pallet. How ridiculous the Sabbath rules were. And as we have discussed over and over again in this study, Jesus did not break any divine rules about the Sabbath rest, did he? Not any divine rules. He only broke man-made ridiculous rules about the Sabbath. In fact, he fulfilled the spirit of the divine laws about the Sabbath by actually giving this man rest from his wearisome burden of blindness. Don't you know he gave this man rest from having been Persecute all his life, he could feel people looking at him and thinking and maybe hearing, overhearing them say things like the disciples said, you know, did this man sin in his mother's womb or is he reaping the consequences of some former bad life or what is he going to do in this life that's so bad that he was born blind? 
And now he's, he's able to rest from that horrible burden and the horrible burden of having to feel his way along everywhere he went. So God, Jesus fulfilled the, the spirit of the Sabbath by giving this man rest. Now this interrogation served really as a great test of this man's courage. You know, it was one thing to stand and to testify what had happened to him before his neighbors and before people who had known him all of his life on his own street. But it was quite another thing to stand before the big honchos in the Sanhedrin uh, because they had the power to make or break a man. How could they break a man? They could desynagogue him. And remember, this healed blind man, at this point in time, this guy has no idea whatsoever that he will ever see Jesus again. And I really should say that he would ever meet Jesus again because he never has seen Jesus. He doesn't know that he'll ever meet him. Jesus is gone. He doesn't know where he went. For all he knew, he could have been on his way back up to Galilee. So a weaker man might have, have succumbed to the temptation to make friends with these powerful men, these Pharisees, if he played it right and tattletailed on Jesus, which is, if you go back and read John chapter 5, I'm not too proud of the, go over there for just a second. I don't know if I have time to do this, but I didn't do it yesterday. But after the man at the pool of Bethesda was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked, John chapter 5. Look at verse 12. The Jews asked him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. And what does the man do after that? He departs and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. He kind of tattletailed, didn't he? Even when he gives his testimony, he says in verse 11, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up my, my bed and walk. He really blames everything on Jesus. You know, and he, and he tattletales on him. So this, go back to John 9, this blind man could have done basically the same thing. He could have tattled on Jesus and said, Well, He's the one who did it. He's the one who told me what to do. And um, I just obeyed him. If he did that, maybe they would reward him with a job. You know what? He needed a job. He couldn't go back to begging because now he could see. Nobody's going to give a seeing beggar any, any alms. So maybe they would reward him with a job or with a position. So he might have tried to play it safe for himself. But he was a man without guile. And I like that in this fellow. He was not going to play any games. No matter who, who these fellows were, how much power they had. Actually, what we find is in his answer to the Pharisees, he really is again doing all he can to try to protect Jesus. Notice that he says, all he says about Jesus is, He put clay upon mine eyes. He didn't say he spit and used saliva. He, and he didn't say he made clay. He only says he put clay upon my eyes. He doesn't say he told me to go to the pool and wash. He told me to do something directly against the Sabbath rules because you're not allowed to wash your eyes on the Sabbath. He merely says he put clay upon my eyes and I washed and do see. 
You see there, he is lessening the Lord's breach of their Sabbath laws, while at the same time he is admitting to his own breach of their Sabbath laws, because washing was a no-no. But he admitted washing his own eyes. He could have easily avoided any incrimination of himself by merely saying that Jesus gave him sight. But he told the truth about his own part in this. And that was a very, very courageous thing for him to do. The beggar here is showing great discernment in dealing with these men. Now, don't you know, year after year, as he was sitting there at, outside the temple, that he heard things that people said who didn't really even think of him probably as a person. You know, they just would walk by someone like him and not pay any attention and would say openly things that, you know, that he heard, that they, that they weren't conscious of him hearing. And I think over the years, he got really discerning about people. And I think over the years, he really learned that these Jewish guys, as they pass by all the time, from the Sanhedrin to into the temple and back out, etc., that he knew these guys were a bunch of hypocrites. Well, now, as there had been some division among the neighbors regarding the blind man, you know, some said it's him, and others said, "Mm, not sure, it's like him, but maybe it isn't him. Now we find that there's also a division among the Pharisees. And the Greek word used for division in verse, um, wherever it is, is it 16? Anyway, the word is schism in the Greek, which refers to a heated disagreement. This thing got serious. One group of Pharisees was very upset. I mean, they were going back and forth. We find that some of the Pharisees started their argument with the Sabbath breach. Their logic was that since this man, speaking of Jesus, did not keep the Sabbath rules, he therefore could not be of God. Whereas the other group of Pharisees started from the miracle, and their logic was that a sinner could not perform such a miracle. Implied in that second group's logic is that If he's not a sinner and he can perform such a miracle, he must be of God. Now, I would strongly suggest to you that included in this second group who said he must be of God to perform such a miracle would be none other than our friend who? Nicodemus. Because this is the very same logic that Nicodemus had used back in John chapter 3 when he first came to the Lord by night and said, No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And I wouldn't be surprised if also in this group, now this is the minority group, and they soon get outspoken. The other guys take over in the rest of this interrogation. But probably was Gamaliel because he was a pretty fair and square guy. And maybe even Joseph of Arimathea. Well, anyway, after some heated argumentation among themselves, the Pharisees eventually decided to turn back to the beggar and take out their frustrations on him. And the danger for him increases by their next question. So far, they had only asked him how he had received his sight. But now they wanted to know his opinion of the one who had healed him. They say, they ask him, what sayest thou of him? You see, prior to this, the blind beggar had only been required to repeat his story, but now they want him to, to choose sides, really, in this argument. Was the one who had healed him a sinner 
or was he of God? Now, one group of the Pharisees would have probably hoped that he would be too intimidated by their majority voice to say anything favorable about Jesus. And the other group, which would include Nicodemus, was probably hoping that just by his thankfulness to Jesus for what had been done to him, that he would speak well of Jesus. But regardless of their motive behind the question, the Lord himself was really the one behind the scenes here. He was using, the Lord God was using this entire pressurized situation in order to cause this man to digest, to think about, to meditate upon what exactly had happened to him. Who had given him his sight? You see, up to this point, he's been very busy ever since he received his sight. You know, he's he gets it at the pool of Siloam, and then he runs back to his neighborhood, and he's just inundated by people asking him what happened, and he's sharing it, and then they drag him off to the, the Pharisees, and ever since he got to the Pharisees, he's been interrogated. So he hasn't really had a whole lot of time to, to digest what's happened to him. But now with their question, what do you think of this man? Is he a sinner or of God? He's finally able to just sit back and start to meditate. Who was it that had given him his sight? And why was there all this division going on about this one? And his answer to them is what? He is a prophet. You know, previously when he had been asked in the street about his healer, he had only said that Jesus was a man, but now he had come to the realization that Jesus was far more than just an ordinary man. There is, as I told you earlier, no record of any Old Testament prophet, no matter how great, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, who had given a born blind man his sight. So this one named Jesus had to at least be the equivalent of a prophet. You know, also think about what the man had heard the Lord predict back in verses um, 3 and 4. When the Lord had predicted ahead of time that the works of God would be made manifest in the blind man. What does a prophet do? He foretells things. So Jesus had said ahead of time that the works of of God would be made manifest in this man, and he had then authoritatively declared that that was why this man had been born blind. So he's thinking, well, he predicted that, and it came true. He's got to be a prophet. Interestingly, this poor beggar was proving himself to be more than a match for these Pharisees. (laughs) The more they examine him, as we'll see, the worse he makes them look. He's really a lot like Jesus already. No wonder they accuse him of being one of the Lord's disciples. You see, in saying that Jesus was a prophet, he's putting them in another dilemma because there was a Jewish saying that a prophet of God could dispense with the observance of the Sabbath law when he was sent on a very special mission from God. So this beggar's response put the Pharisees in a dilemma, another dilemma. Now they really had to do something about this man's testimony in order to shut him up. So they're thinking, what can we do? Oh, maybe he's in cahoots with Jesus. Maybe this is all just a trick, and this man is merely saying that he had been born blind. And uh, maybe the truth of the matter is that he wasn't born blind at all, and he's just one of Jesus' disciples. So verse 18 tells us that they didn't believe him and that... um, 
they decide at this point in time, let's call in, let's summon his parents. And the thinking behind that is that, number one, maybe the parents will say, no, he wasn't born blind at all. Or two, if he was born blind, maybe they still could intimidate the parents enough that they would be so afraid of being excommunicated that they wouldn't admit that their son had been born blind. So let's look at the interrogation of the parents now, verses 18 to 23. It says, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? You see the insinuation right there? Who ye say was born blind. How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents. Here's the reason why they spoke like they did. Because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, Jesus, was Christ, meaning he was the Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. All right, notice right away that even though the Jews are going to interrogate and ask the parents a question, they give this strong warning to them. They're hinting to them that they don't want to believe them no matter what they say. So that's why they say, "Who is this your son who you say was born blind? Um, they're, they're really hinting to them that they could be in trouble how they answer this. And maybe they're even saying, um, maybe you're in on this with your son. Maybe this is all just a deception. Maybe you're all uh, disciples of Jesus. Well, sadly, for their own sake and for their son's sake, it was for fear of running the slightest risk of excommunication or of even being separated uh, or suspected, I should say, of being followers of Jesus that the blind man's parents refused to offer any opinion whatsoever about his cure. What does it say in Proverbs twenty-nine twenty-five? The fear of man brings a snare. And these parents got snared. This mom and dad were not of the same character and courage as their son. I think he got his courage out there, you know, being a social outcast and listening and having a discerning spirit. And he built up courage, but they did not. Their actions before the Jews were not only very cowardly, but they're very selfish. Now, to their credit, we do have to admit they were, they were right in saying, okay, yes, this is our son. They did admit that the man was their son. And they did acknowledge that he had been born blind. But we can't help but believe that they're lying when they say, but by what means he now seeth, we know not, and who hath opened his eyes, we know not. Surely by this time they had either heard directly from their own son or from one of the neighbors how he had been healed. So what they're really suggesting here is that their son, um, they're telling their son that they didn't either believe him if he had told them or that he was lying about how he had gotten cure. But the main thing is that they're just, they're just trying to protect themselves. 
And then they went on to defer the whole thing right back to their son, didn't they? They they just put the whole thing back in his court by saying, well, he's of age, ask him. They preferred to just dump this whole thing on him, let him be excommunicated. You know, we don't want to risk ourselves being excommunicated. You know, he's used to being a social outcast anyway. So he can talk for you. He can tell you what happened. They would prefer to just keep quiet and to keep safe. So if the poor beggar had hoped that his parents would stand by him and would uh, corroborate on his witness before this unfriendly tribunal, he was very sadly disappointed, as likewise he must have been so sadly disappointed over the fact that nobody but nobody seemed to be very happy for him. Can you just imagine this, this guy? I mean, the first day he can see anything, and all he is looking at is everybody with uh, grumpy faces, people being argumentative and antagonistic and um, fearful, like his parents, maybe their knees knocking together, and everybody divisive. That's his first day of seeing. That's so sad. And then his parents, you know, that they didn't stand up for him. Just think of the parents. Jesus had changed everything for them. Don't, wouldn't they have had a natural love for their flesh and blood son? Wouldn't they be happy for him that he could now see? The burden was lifted from them, not only from their son, but from them. I would think that these Pharisees would think, well, you know, if he had been born in sin, now that he's got his, his sight, he must have been forgiven. And so these parents should be happy. Jesus had put himself at risk for their son's sake. The Jews were after him with heavy stones, and yet he stopped to heal their son. And yet they're not even willing to imperil themselves to help Jesus or their own son. They're very cowardly people, and they're very selfish. And the clue that these parents really did know the what and the who of the miracle is given to us by John in verse 22 when it tells us that it was their fear of the Jews that caused them to speak this way. So that's really, really sad. You know, being excommunicated from the the synagogue was something I I don't think we can even begin to fathom how awful it was for a Jewish person. Because it it wasn't like just losing your membership in in a local church or in a local um, religious organization such as the synagogue. It meant being ostracized completely from the Jewish community. It meant you were shunned by other Jews. You couldn't be in business because no one was allowed to buy from you. No one could trade with you. No one could hire you for work. Uh, your, even your family members were not supposed to speak to you. And therefore, it was, a very, it was the, the most dreaded thing apart from death for Jewish people. And, and these parents weren't willing to give up their seats in the synagogue. They, they, their fear of the Jews caused a snare. So anyway, after grilling the blind man's parents without much satisfaction, uh, they, they turned back to interrogating the beggar. And I think it's really interesting that really their interrogation of the parents, even though it didn't get them very far because they weren't willing to say anything about Jesus or what had happened, yet that interrogation backfired on the Pharisees because now they, had al- they supplied two witnesses as to the fact that the man had been indeed born blind. Who would know better that he had been born blind than his own two parents? 
there's your two witnesses. So that's interesting how the Lord is behind everything. Let's look real quickly. I'm only going to get to verse 26, so we only have two verses to go. Let's look at the interrogation again of the beggar. We'll only just get started, and then we'll stop at verse 26 and continue next week. Uh, But I am going to read through verse 34 so you get the whole flow. Start at um, verse 24. Then again, there's that word again, called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus himself back in chapter 8, verse 46, said to the Pharisees, Who of you can convince me or convict me of sin? No one could say a word. And now all of a sudden, we know that he's a sinner. Well, the man answers them in verse 25. The blind man answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And now the blind man's starting to really get tired of this question. He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Oh, that made them mad. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this, this, because the word fellow isn't in the original, as for this, that's how they're speaking derogatorily of Jesus. We know not whence he is. It's funny that in chapter 7, verse 27, they said they did know where he was, and they only wouldn't know where the Christ was. They're they're talking double talk here. Anyway, verse 30, the man answered. Now, this is the man's longest speech here. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing. Here's where his humor sort of comes in and shows us that he isn't intimidated one bit by these guys. He says that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know. They had said we, and now he's giving them back their we. We know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doth doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins. You know what they're saying there? They knew he was born blind, because that was their reason for thinking he was born blind because he was born in sins he did something in his mother's womb or his mother and father did something so here they're admitting they knew he was born blind that was altogether born in sins and dost thou teach us and what did they do to him they cast him out calling on the beggar go back to verse 24 um, to give praise to god was really a very ingenious attempt on the part of the pharisees or the jews here to turn him from praising jesus to praising god okay let's forget about jesus don't praise jesus for this miracle do what you're supposed to do and praise god for the miracle they said this man jesus couldn't be anything but a sinner if he is trying to take the praise away from god And also the little formula, give praise to God, was a form of swearing in, in a Jewish court. So they're asking the man to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help him God. But before they even allowed him to say a word, they went on to try to prejudice his response when they said we. And in the Greek, the we is very emphatic. 
In other words, they're saying, we learned men know already that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And you know what? The truth of the matter is that they're the ones who have it all wrong. You cannot give God praise and call his son a sinner. (laughs) They had this all backwards. And if they knew he was a sinner, why didn't they name some sin when he had given them a chance to do so? This tactic here of theirs was nothing but a form of intimidation. It was a way of telling this blind man that he had better cooperate with them. Or we, who have the power to do so, we're going to throw you out of the religious and social life of Israel. If you think you had it bad as a beggar, you ain't seen nothing yet, is what they're trying to threaten him with. But wisely, all he does here is simply repeat his testimony, kind of like a captured soldier. A POW is only allowed to give what? Rank, name, and serial number. And now they can give their date of birth. He didn't get into a debate here about the person of Jesus. He simply and very clearly said, whether he be a sinner or or no, I know not. He's going to know later, but at this point he says, I don't know, I don't want to get into that debate. But one thing I do know, (laughs) whereas I was blind, now I see. One thing he knew. How about you? Do you know that one, at one point in time you were blind? And now you see, I know that. I know one time, for 22 and a half years, I walked in darkness, and, and all of a sudden, one day, I could see. These Jews here were dealing with a man who refused to be manipulated. He was not going to be intimidated by them. You know what? Think about the fact that he didn't have to, he never had been tempted to judge somebody by their outward appearance. He didn't care what kind of fancy robes they were wearing. He didn't care how long their beards were or how many bells they had on the bottom of their robes or if they wore the phylacteries on their foreheads. That didn't impress him one bit. He judged people by what he heard. And so he's not, he is not intimidated. He's not going to be deceived. He's not going to be defeated by all of their ruthless, sly, prejudiced interrogations. He knew what he knew, and nobody but nobody was going to get him to back down from knowing that he had been blind for some 30 years, and now he could see. You know, there are a lot of things that this world tries to tell you and I that we cannot know. The world says, well, nobody can know truth. Remember, like Pilate said, what is truth? Who can know what truth is? Who can know good from evil? Who can know right from wrong? We can't know these things. But, and, and let's say, you, we can't know for sure that there's a God. We can't know that there's really a heaven and that there's really such a thing as hell. But in saying all that, they are just as wrong as these Pharisees. They are dead wrong. There is a lot of things that we can know. We can know, we can know that we are born again. I know I was born again because I was there when it happened. I remember that day so vividly because my eyes were open and I never saw a tree look more beautiful. I remember staring at a tree and thinking, wow, this was made by God. This is magnificent. I remember looking up at the stars in the the sky at night and thinking, I, I was just like seeing them all new and afresh. There are a lot of things we can know. We can know, just like Job, that our Redeemer liveth. We can know, 
in whom we have believed. And we can be persuaded that he is able to keep that which we have committed unto him against that day. We can know that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And as I study every word and every action of him, I become more and more, every week I become more and more solid and convinced that he is indeed the Savior. I don't have any doubt about it. He's the Savior of the world. He's the light of the world. He is the true Messiah of Israel. In fact, he is very God of very God. He is I am that I am. We can know that (laughs) all things work together for good for them that are called of God, them that love God. I can know and we can know for sure that Christ is returning. I can know just as surely that when he came at his first coming, he's going to come again. And I know that he's coming soon. And, and he's going to come and he's going to set everything right in this upside down, topsy-turvy, calling good evil and evil good world. Can't you? I just can't wait for that day when he's going to set everything right. You know, the concept that we cannot know things in the spiritual realm is a concept that is advanced by Satan, not by God. The reason God wrote this book, ladies, is so that we can know things. And this man stood stood his ground. He was no jellified backbone kind of a guy like his parents. He had obviously learned a lot about life and about right and wrong and about the hypocrisy of the religious rulers. And uh, he knew he had just experienced a divine miracle and nobody was going to get him to admit otherwise. And um, it's just a shame that the very first day of his life, all he's looking at is a lot of angry faces. Why, you know what? I would have been so frustrated. I would have said, I would have stomped my foot and said, why in the world can't you people be happy for me? Why can't somebody grab me and say, oh, this is wonderful. And I hope some of the neighbors did. I hope his parents did when they first saw him. They certainly didn't here in the court situation. But... Um, That's where we're going to have to stop for now because we have totally run out of time. And we'll pick up next week with um, verse 27, and we'll see that the guy does show some frustration here. And um, anyway, we'll finish on a really wonderful note when when we find um, his meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ, when he gets to actually see the face of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that... For those of us who know you, we can all say, with this blind man, whereas once I was blind, now I see. And we do thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And if there is one here who has not yet received her spiritual sight, I pray that she would fall down before you and admit that you are the one who died for her, acknowledge that you are Lord, repent of her sins, and then also receive her spiritual sight. Lord, just go with each woman, protect her, put a hedge of of um, protection around her and her family. Keep her from the evil one and bring us all back safely uh, next week, Lord, to finish this wonderful story. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.